Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, you can help keep it going by supporting it through PayPal at WOWB17. I'd rather not start putting stuff behind a paywall or bringing in a subscription system. It really encourages me to get your support. And thank you to those who have sent support, especially Tim Bolin and Kim Eric Schur. It's really appreciated. I've always liked the look of the BF-110, and it was one of the first models that I bought as a kid. I assembled it and hung it over my bed. It seemed like a sleek bird, with its twin engines, powerful punch from the nose armament. And I also imagined that the views from the big greenhouse canopy must have been fabulous. It was later that I came to learn about the ups and the downs of the history of the 110. Let's take a look at them today. Design and Development The 1930s were such a fascinating time in the history of aviation, and especially military aviation. Yes, the initial pioneers had done their thing, and in the First World War, plenty of ideas had been tested. But then there was the lull between the wars, when the veterans of the Great War had their history and traditions to start with, and then had the time to imagine and come up with what they thought would work in a future conflict. Then, when that conflict actually came, a severe Darwinian evolution in overdrive kicked in quickly to prove or disprove the interwar theories. One of these ideas was the Zerstorer, German for destroyer fighter. While some air forces, such as the U.S., were looking at creating a bomber that could range over enemy territory and protect itself and not need fighters, the Zerstorer was to be a heavy fighter with long range that could defend itself and do some bombing, or even go after enemy bombers or even fighters in an air superiority role. Although these concepts sometimes work out, sometimes you end up with a jack-of-all-trades who is master of none of them. Hermann Goring, who had actually been a pilot during the First World War, was a big believer in the Zerstorer concept and pushed the Ministry of Aviation, RLM, to request this multi-purpose fighter. It was to have long range, twin engines, and be all metal with an internal bomb bay and be armed with cannon. Three aviation companies, Berisch Flugzeugwerk, which became Messerschmitt, Focke-Wulf, and Henschel, raised their hands with offers. Focke-Wulf built three prototypes of their FW-57. The aircraft actually looks a little like the 110, except with a dorsal turret, a single tail fin, and underslung engines, rather than those mounted mid-wing. Supposedly, it was very overweight and had very poor handling characteristics, and when one crashed, it was out. The Henschel 124 
looked a lot like the 110 also, except that it had radial engines and looked like it had run its nose into a wall, which made it look less pointy and more bulbous. I'm really not sure why Henschel didn't get a contract, but it didn't. And so it was a bearish Flugzeugwerk that was tapped to build the Zerstorer. Prototypes. Perhaps it was because Willy Messerschmitt and his design team creatively ignored several of the requirements which led to great performance in the prototype. Instead of having three crew members, Messerschmitt had just two, the pilot and a rear gunner. Also, he just left out the internal bomb bay. As for the rest, Messerschmitt built a conventional-style aircraft with manually actuated flight controls, except for automatic slats on the outboard leading edge of the wing. It was a tail dragger with a fixed tail wheel, twin fins, and a single wheel main gear on single struts, retracting backwards into the engine nacelles. The engines were Daimler-Benz DB600 liquid-cooled V12 engines, producing 1,000 horsepower each, driving three-bladed variable-pitch props. The first prototype flew on the 12th of May 1936 and was found to be very fast. In fact, with a maximum speed of 316 miles per hour, which was even faster than its cousin, the BF109 single-engine fighter. The next two prototypes were still seen as good in terms of speed, but maneuverability was not as good as desired. They also had a swing on takeoff, which would come to be a characteristic of the type. Operational history. Over 100 BF-110s were available at the outbreak of the war, and in the Polish campaign, they performed exactly like advertised. Polish pilots would be shocked to see these aircraft that, although they looked like bombers, would swoop in and fight like fighters. The 110s claimed many kills and only lost 10 of their own during battles over Poland. During the Phony War, it was the 110 that shot down the first Allied aircraft when, on the 23rd of November, 1939, a pack of Zerstorers pounced on and shot down a French fighter, a Moraine Solignier MS-406. In December, BF-110s, with some help from 109s, had their way with a formation of 22 RAF Vickers Wellington bombers. These were on their way to hit targets near Wilhelmshaven, but got bounced themselves. Eleven Wellingtons were shot down, and six were damaged. This crushing loss caused the RAF to start thinking about giving up daylight operations and switching to night bombing. During the invasions of Denmark and Norway, 110s were again highly successful, performing many roles, including escort, dogfighting with obsolete Fokker, Gloucester, and Skua fighters and attacking targets on the ground. On the 9th of July, 1940, 110s and 19s knocked down 7 out of 12 Bristol Blenheims. 
Very much like the Stuka dive bomber, the 110 seemed to perform very well in an air superiority role when free to engage older or obsolete aircraft in the time of their choosing. But there were worries. As early as January 1940, when Walter Horton, who was the technical officer of Jagdschwader 26, had performed some tests in mock combat between 110s and BF-109s. The 109s came out on top every time, which was an indication of what would happen when they were forced to go head-to-head -head with modern single-engine fighters. He said, open quotes, Gentlemen, be very careful if you should ever come up against the English. Their fighters are all single-engined, and once they get to know the BF-110's weaknesses, you could be in for a very nasty surprise. Close quotes. Although the 110 still performed well in the Western campaigns against France and the Netherlands, it was at a greater and greater cost when coming up against RAF Spitfires and Hurricanes. During these campaigns, 60 110s were lost, this number being one-third of their initial strength at the start. This didn't portend well for the future battle over the skies of Britain. Heading into the Battle of Britain, the 110 did have some great qualities going for it. It had great range, unlike the 109, which was always hampered by short legs over the UK. It was fast, even faster than a hurricane, and if allowed to dictate to the terms of battle, it could do well. They could survive, if they could start from high altitude and drop in on a British fighter formation to hit hard and then run. In what the Americans in the Flying Tigers would later call boom and zoom, in the tactics that they would use with their P-40s against the more nimble Zeros. But in the Battle of Britain, the 110s would be forced into a close escort role for which they were not well suited. For without the benefit of height and an escape hatch to run, they could not match the acceleration or maneuverability of the Spitfires and Hurricanes they were up against. Losses began to take a worsening and worsening toll on the 110s. In July 1940, Hermann Göring's own nephew, Hans Joachim Göring, was flying a 110 when he was shot down by a hurricane of number 87 Squadron RAF. Things turned critical in August. On the 15th of August 1940, almost 30 BF-110s were lost. In the next two days, another 23 were blown out of the sky. The factories just could not replace them at this rate. The theme of the story was similar in the Balkans, North Africa, the Mediterranean, and even in Russia. As long as the 110 was not seriously opposed by enemy single-engine fighters and was not asked to do close dogfighting, it did well. It was also very valuable as a ground attack aircraft as long as it was protected from above. On the Eastern Front experience, 110 pilots could do terrible damage to tanks, trucks, aircraft on the ground, and even shipping. 
But in all the campaigns, the story always ended with mounting modern fighter opposition eventually outpacing the 110 and doing prohibitive damage. As we've heard so often in these episodes, the 110 should have been replaced or withdrawn by this point. But this was not to be. Firstly, let's talk about replacement. Almost as soon as the 110 entered production, Messerschmitt was looking forward enough to start preparing for its obsolescence. The result was the ME210, which on paper looked fantastic. It looked like a 110 with a shortened and blunter nose. It had an all-new wing platform and more powerful engines. Its internal bomb bay meant that it could carry two 1,100-pound bombs without causing drag so it could fly 50 miles per hour faster than the 110. It had dive brakes so it could make shallow-style dive-bombing attacks. It even had a fancy-pants remote-controlled 13mm rear gun turret on each side of the fuselage. These were operated by a gunner holding pistol grips in a glassed-in area at the rear of the cockpit area. Sounds great, eh? The Reich Ministry of Aviation thought so too, and ordered 1,000 of them before the prototype had even flown. And when the first 210 prototype flew on September 1939, it did not go well. It was considered unsafe by most test pilots. It was a very unstable aircraft, even when just flying level, which is pretty basic. It would start oscillating when asked to do anything else, such as turn. Pilots said that it flew like a snake. Even worse, it had terrible stall characteristics, which snapped into deadly spins when the automatic leading edge slats opened. The second prototype whipped into a spin and the test pilot had to bail out of the aircraft. The chief test pilot of the program wrote that the plane had, open quotes, all the least desirable attributes that an aeroplane could possess, close quotes. Wow, that's pretty harsh. Messerschmitt tried. They really, really tried to make it work. They built 16 different prototypes and 94 pre-production types to try to sort out all the myriad of problems. They changed the tail, and the tail fin, and they lengthened the fuselage. None of it really fixed the problems completely, but by this point, the Luftwaffe was desperate, and the 210 was ordered into production anyway. 210s began to be delivered to combat units in April of 1942, and you can guess how bad that went when, in that same month, production was abandoned after only 90 units had been delivered. 320 half-finished examples were placed in storage. The BF-110 was ordered back into production, and Messerschmitt decided to focus on trying to complete the replacement for the 210, which was the 410. This seems like the aviation equivalent of when the infantry starts drafting grandpas and little kids. The ME-410 Hornice, or Hornet, 
had sufficient changes to solve the problems of the 210. These included changes to the fuselage and wing plan form, which adjusted the aircraft's uh, center of gravity. Deliveries of these began in January 1943, and for the next year, about 1,100 of them would be produced by Messerschmitt and Dornier. But do you know what was still out there flying with the 410s? The 110s. In the Defense of the Reich campaign, the 110 had gotten a new lease on life after it had been withdrawn from daylight operations. And unlike many obsolete types that would end up doing second-line time work, such as training or towing something like targets or gliders or whatever, the 110 was still operating as a front-line fighter, but just at night. 110s were either modified for the role or purpose-built as night fighters, and almost 2,200 of them were built for that role. They had started as impromptu night fighters in the winter of 1940 to 1941, going up against RAF bombers with no special equipment, training, or procedures. They'd just take off and grope around using the crew's own Mark I eyeballs to look for targets. The pressures of night combat quickly brought on improvements, such as ground-controlled radar interception in mid-1941. The existing design of the 110 made it ideal for adaptation to the night fighter role. There was space and capacity for carrying early airborne 202-220 Liechtenstein radar units, and this was added in 1941. You can tell the night fighter version of the 110 by the radar antenna horns mounted on the nose. These work to a maximum range of 2.2 miles. The ground-based radar units would talk the 110 pilots into an intercept within that range, whereby the airborne radar operator would vector his pilot to within about 600 feet of a target, when the Mark I eyeball would then take over again. To kill the big four-engine beasts, the 110 was given increased armament with four 7.92mm machine guns and two 20mm cannon mounted in the nose. Some were also installed with Schraga music, which were two 20mm cannon mounted to fire upward at an oblique angle. Bill Gunston, in his book, Night Fighters, A Development and Combat History, writes of Schraga music, open quotes, The technique was to approach deliberately at a lower level, but this time all the night fighter pilot had to do was to slow up a little, rise up below the bomber and hold formation. A Nachtjager expert pilot could follow his observer's directions, acquire the bomber visually, close and destroy it within 60 seconds. The firing position with the bomber 65 to 70 degrees above the fighter was an almost ideal one. The fighter could see the bomber clearly as a darker silhouette, either blotting out the stars or against paler sky or high cloud. It presented the biggest possible target and reflected any light from searchlights, ground fires, or TIs, 
target indicators. With the two aircraft in close formation, there was an ideal no-deflection shot. And the fighter was perfectly safe, because it was well below the Monica beam and could not be seen by any member of the bomber's crew. The only snag was that the Luftwaffe's guns were so effective that the night fighter usually had to get out of the way very, very fast. Close quotes. Some night fighting 110's engines were also fitted with a boosting system such as GM-1, which was a system that injected nitrous oxide, laughing gas, into the engines. This would briefly increase the amount of oxygen in the fuel mixture and give improved high-altitude performance. These measures gave the 110 new life and its night-fighting pilots the ability to rack up impressive kill numbers, such as Heinz Wolfgang Schnaufer, who shot down 110 RAF four-engine bombers with his 110, probably single-handedly causing more RAF casualties than any other Luftwaffe fighter pilot. In 1943, the USAAF began its deep penetration daylight raids, and for some of them, it was an all-hands-on-deck effort for the defenders, with even the night fighters being called up to attack the fortresses and liberators. You almost had to feel sorry for these guys. They were trained and experienced at their very specific manner of night fighting, and now they were being flung, all blinky-eyed in the daytime sunshine, to go after these U.S. formations that were bristling with 50 cal machine guns. There were times when it worked, and there were times when they were just wasted, especially as the long-range U.S. fighters came into their own and were able to escort their big friends all the way to the targets and back. We know that the 110s were just no match for those. In one raid in April 1944, the 110s lost 23 of the 77 machines committed. This was clearly unsustainable, and they were withdrawn from the daylight altogether. But 110s would fight right up to the very end at night. When it comes to variants, there are almost too many to list. One interesting one was the BF-110D-0, which had a massive non-droppable belly-mounted tank called the Dackelbauch, which literally means Dachshund's belly in German. Look it up. The name fits. When you see a picture of it, I mean, that's what it looks like. But the added drag of the early Dachshund's belly during testing caused it to be cancelled as a production model. Instead, for long-range work, a 110 could be equipped with two 900-liter drop tanks and a droppable 85-liter oil tank. I don't think I've heard of any other aircraft with a droppable oil tank. There were photo reconnaissance versions and a rescue model that carried a dinghy. Early night fighter models had an infrared homing device before radar sets were added. The word perfect is thrown around a lot these days. I don't know if it's just a Montreal or Quebec or Canada thing, but when I'm ordering something on the phone or talking to a clerk and they ask my address and I give it, 
And as they type it in, they'll say, okay, perfect. Tap, 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 tap. Maybe I think too much about these things, but I'll start pondering if my address really is perfect. What's perfect about it? The number? The street name? Why is it an avenue and not a street anyway? By that time, the clerk will be impatiently waiting for my postal code. And guess what? That'll be perfect too. But in the research for this episode, I think maybe we have found the perfect pilot. And not just that, the perfect night fighter pilot. So he's a thoroughbred in a class of thoroughbreds. In fact, he may just be the perfect perceived product of the Third Reich in all its aspirations. Heinz Wolfgang Schnaufer was born on the 16th of February, 1922, in Kalp, in the free people state of Württemberg, which is now known as Baden-Württemberg. He was the eldest of four children, and his father was a mechanical engineer and also owned and operated a winery, Schnaufer's Castle Mountain Winery, until his death in 1940, when Schnaufer's mother took over. Young Schnaufer joined the Deutsche Jungvolk, German youth, when he was 11. Later, he took and passed exams to attend the National Political Institutes of Education, which was a secondary boarding school founded by the Nazis with the goal to train leadership for the political, military, and administrative needs of the Third Reich. Schnaufer was the top of his class every year, and he graduated with distinction in November 1939, also earning the Reich Youth Sports Badge, the Certificate of German Life-Saving Association, the Bronze Hitler Youth Performance Badge, and completed his glider's license. I'm thinking that this guy either had to be annoying as hell to his fellow students, or one of those golden boys that everyone likes and admires. Of course, he aced the entrance exam and entered the Luftwaffe during the same month in 1939. He trained in a wide variety of aircraft, passing through basic, advanced, and then blind flying schools. Finally, he was posted for 10 weeks to the Zerstorer Schule, destroyer school. There, he needed to be paired up with a radio operator to form a two-man crew. Schnaufer's first radio operator didn't work out, because when they went flying, he got nauseous and tossed his cookies all over the place during Schnaufer's wild aerobatics. On the 3rd of July, 1941, Schnaufer tried out Friedrich Rumpelhart, and these two hit it off like Lennon McCartney or Simon and Garfunkel, if those guys had been night fighters instead of musicians. They were assigned as an air crew team. As a pair, they attended Nachtjagdschule 1, first night fighter school near Munich. They trained on the AR-96, the FW-58, and the Messerschmitt BF-110. While they were there, they honed their skills on night takeoffs and landings, coordinating with searchlights, using radio beacons as aid to navigation, and doing plenty of cross-country flying. In November 1941, 
they were assigned to second group of Nacht Jagdschwader 1. So, second group of the first Night Fighter Wing, at the time based near Hamburg. There was no onboard radar yet, and he and Rumpelhart had a somewhat slow start in the victory business. They had 12 combat missions with no luck, and it was only on the night of the 1st to 2nd June 1942 that they shot down a Halifax over Belgium. They were actually headed for a Bristol Blenheim when another night fighter swooped in and knocked that one down. Drats! After that, at about 3am, they spotted another target and Schnaufer made two attacks. Both were unsuccessful, and during their third, when they were only 66 feet away from their target, defensive gunfire sprayed their 110. Schnaufer was hit in the left leg, the left engine burst into flames, his rudder control cables were cut, and a seriously annoying electrical short circuit caused the landing lights to be permanently on. They thought about bailing out, but after they put out the engine fire and restarted the engine, Rumpelhart and Schnaufer decided to make a go for their home airfield. Schnaufer got the aircraft on the ground without rudder control and with only ailerons and engine power alone. I bet the RAF wished that that unknown tail gunner had had better aim. Turns out, with all the dangers of night flying and combat, it would be the only time that Schnaufer would be forced down for whatever reason. On the 1st of June 1942, Rumpelhart and Schnaufer claimed their first aerial victory on their 13th combat mission flown. They got the Iron Cross, second class, for this first aerial victory, which was a Halifax. Schnaufer went to hospital in Brussels from the 8th to 25th for surgery, and during that time, Rumpelhart went on leave. But on the 1st of August, the pair were back, this time destroying two Vickers Wellingtons and one Armstrong Whitworth Whitley in just over one hour. You think that's good? Just wait. A few weeks later, on the night of 24th to 25th August 1942, Schnaufer achieved the status of ace when he got his fifth aerial victory when he shot down a Wellington. This was the first time with the FUG-202 Liechtenstein UHF band airborne radar, which Rumpelhart had used to guide the team onto the target. The pair was split up for a time when Rumpelhart got sick and had to attend some officer training courses. That didn't slow down Schnaufer, who still got 21 more aerial victories with four different radio operators. Schnaufer continued to earn victories, get promoted, and win commendations, one being the Honor Goblet of the Luftwaffe on the 26th of July, 1943, which until this moment I didn't know was a thing. Although some pilots only got a goblet on paper, Schnaufer was one that got an actual metal goblet. Sometime in 1943, Schnaufer and Rumpelhart received a 110 with the Schraga Music upward firing autocannons. Supposedly 20 to 30 of Schnaufer's victories were from using the Schraga Music. 
On the night of the 15th of February 1944, Schnaufer was suffering a terrible stomach ache. But he and Rumpelhart took off anyway, and they claimed aerial victories 45, 46, and 47 regardless. That morning was Schnaufer's birthday, and he got the confirmation of a case of appendicitis as a birthday present. He was out of action for two weeks, and then was out longer when he tried to leave the hospital, picked up his heavy suitcase by himself, and burst his stitches. He was back in action on March 1944. On May 25, 1944, Schnaufer became an ace in a day when he shot down five RAF bombers that were targeting the railway marshalling yard at Aachen in an incredible 14-minute period between 1.15 and 1.29. These were victories 70 to 74 for him. On the 30th of July, he received the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves and swords. You know you're getting famous in your field when Adolf Hitler himself made the presentation, walking into the ceremony saying, Where is the night fighter? Rumpelhart and Wilhelm Gansler received the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross on 8th of August also. Wait a minute, you're asking, who the heck is Wilhelm Gansler? In September 1943, the danger of RAF intruder night fighters hunting the hunters had become such that a third member was added to BF-110 crews. He was known as an air mechanic or air gunner, and his job was to watch out for RAF intruders locking onto their 6 o'clock position. Anyway, this night fighter crew was the only one in the Luftwaffe where all crew members were so highly decorated. On the 20th of November 1944, Schnaufer was then appointed wing commander of the 4th Night Fighter Wing. He was the youngest wing commander in the Luftwaffe. He was only 22 years old. I know quite a few 22-year-olds, and some of them just have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. I find it mind-blowing that someone so young could achieve so much in so short a time. By this time, Schnaufer was the leading night fighter ace in the entire Luftwaffe, and what usually happens with these high-ranking aces is at some point the higher-ups start thinking whether he's more useful as a living national hero or a potential dead martyr. On the 8th of February 1945, Schnaufer was invited to Reichmarschall Hermann Göring's house and he was offered the role of Inspector of the Night Fighter Force. A nice, safe, non-fighting job. Schnaufer politely turned down the offer and talked Goring into allowing him to remain in combat. The next week, Schnaufer earned a very, very rare honor indeed. This one from his enemy. The British bomber crews had taken to calling him the Spook of St. Trond, and on the 16th of February 1945, Soldiers Radio Calais, which was a British propaganda radio station, congratulated Schnaufer on his 23rd birthday and played the song The Boogeyman for him. He repaid them the very next week with his greatest one-night success. 
when on the 21st of February, he claimed nine Lancaster bombers. Seven of these were shot down in a 19-minute period. His last victories were earned on the night of 7-8 March, when he shot down three more RAF four-engine bombers for a total victory count of 121. Following this, he was banned from further combat flying and given the job of evaluating the new Dornier DO-335 file or Arrow, which was the twin-engine push-pull heavy fighter for its suitability as a night fighter. I'm looking forward to profiling that warbird at some point. It's a cool-looking bird. Of course, you know that he ignored his ban from combat flying and flew his last mission of the war on 9th of April 1945. He chased a Lancaster, but this lucky one got away. The next month, Schnaufer was captured and taken prisoner of war by the British Army. He was interrogated, especially to find out if his amazing achievements had been made while under the influence of so-called Nazi superdrugs. Although my research doesn't say that he was taking them, there was widespread use of a medication known as Pervitin in not only the armed forces, but also in general society during the Third Reich. Pervitin is basically methamphetamine or speed. After the war, Schnaufer took over the family winery business, but at one point tried to get to South America to find employment as a pilot. But he crossed the Swiss border illegally and was arrested and was imprisoned for a time. Almost unbelievably, the man who had survived the war with nary a scratch was killed at the age of 28 in a car crash. On the other hand, his wartime buddy and radio operator Rumpelhart lived to the ripe old age of 90, only passing in 2011. There are no airworthy 110s, but Messerschmitt BF 110 G Werk number 730301 is on display at the Royal Air Force Museum's London site at Hendon, North London. Messerschmitt BF-110, Werk number 5052, is displayed at the Deutsche Technomuseum, Berlin. Lastly, our profiled pilot, Heinz Wolfgang Schnauzer's Messerschmitt BF-110, was brought to England after the war. The aircraft was displayed in London's Hyde Park for a time, and its portside vertical stabilizer, the one tallying all his victories, is preserved at the Imperial War Museum in London. I find it interesting and funny that the British can honor their past enemy, one who probably single-handedly killed more RAF personnel than any other. I guess it says something about the British character. <laughs>